Howdy-ho, everyone. Thank you for tuning into my show. This episode is with Elliot Schwartz. Elliot is a senior scientist at the Good Food Institute, which is a nonprofit that promotes plant-based meat, dairy, and eggs, as well as clean meat. We're talking about growing meat in Petri dishes, everyone. I learned a lot in this conversation, and I hope you will, too. Elliot holds a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA, and he listens to my podcast and sent me an email and said, hey, if you're interested in having me on, uh, seems like uh, we might jive, and we absolutely did. So thank you, Elliot, for reaching out. Uh, I will link to the Good Food Institute in the bio below so you can get in touch if you want to learn more. Uh, I'm down in LA right now. I've been down here for about the last 10 days and have another week ahead doing pre-production for MOFA's 19. A couple big decisions about where we're going to hold the venue this year. Uh, booking comics, booking presenters, researching issues, uh, full steam ahead. But it's been good. Uh, really excited. And uh, we just released MOFA's merchandise on the website, themotherfuckerawards.com. So if you want men's and women's t-shirts, wine glasses, uh, tote bags, all that stuff is up on the store section of the Motherfucker Awards. And if you want to go to my website, kyle.surf, that's where you can learn more about my work. That's where you can donate to the podcast if you feel so inclined. Uh, and you can check out all the other podcasts on my website, kyle.surf. I'm also getting more and more into doing this email thing. Um, I think I'm just going to copy Tim Ferriss and do basically a version of his five bullet Friday, except it'll be with like the gear that I'm into, you know, like the best gear I've been finding recently, best surf videos, best documentary It's just Kind of my own version of it, you know? Why reinvent the wheel? But if you would be interested in those kinds of emails from me once a week, you can sign up on my website, kyle.surf. As always, big thank you to Mudwater for supporting this show. Mudwater is a chai mushroom blend. You can go to mudwtr.com and type in the code name KYLE10, all caps, to get 10 bucks off your first order. And thank you also to Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals is a CBD company based out of Santa Cruz. Uh, They make coconut oil, olive oil, pain cream. You can get 10% off by going to scmedicinals.com and typing in the code name KYLE10, also all caps. That's it for now, everyone. Hope you all have a wonderful day, and please welcome to the show, Elliot Schwartz. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. All right, so I'm really excited to talk with you about cell-based meats. Is that the correct term for what it is that you're doing? 
Yeah, yeah. The um, the nomenclature has been shifty, um, and it's still kind of changing, but cell-based meat, so some people refer to it as cultured meat, clean meat, um, in vitro meat, or lab-grown meat. Um, those are all terms for the same thing, but essentially cell-based meat was kind of the decided term based off of some industry discussions. Um, it just makes it easier to communicate um, to kind of... Uh, regulators as well as people in the existing meat industry without offending them like if you call it a clean meat product it they kind of could take that offensively and say oh our product is not dirty is that what your you know your sure. connotation is so cell-based meat seems to be the term of interest right for now and how do you create cell-based meat yeah so um at the kind of 30,000 foot level on a simple kind of without going too much into the scientific details, essentially what you can do now is, is take, you know, a small biopsy from a, a living animal or one that is recently slaughtered. This can be under local anesthesia or it could be even a blood sample. Um, so very like minimally invasive. Um, you can take that to the lab and you can basically purify the population of stem cells that are of interest. And you use a stem cell population because those cells are basically programmed to divide. Um, that's, that's what they do, and they can also differentiate into other cells of interest. So the idea is basically we, we can now leverage you know, all of this advancement in, in regenerative medicine and cell therapy and stem cell biology, and instead of trying to you know, make organs for human uh, replacement, we can use those same technologies to just you know, make meat. So the process, once you have those stem cells, is to put them um, in a bioreactor, or sometimes we refer to it as a, a cultivator for the kind of non-scientific or lay audience. And essentially, you just, uh, you know, put those cells in a bath of nutrients, uh, sugars, amino acids, lipids, everything that you expect a cell to survive. Um, and they will proliferate rapidly in large amounts. And then you can transition them through switches in the medium composition um, or even by growing them on a certain uh, scaffolding structure. And that can turn them into muscle and fat tissue. Um, and then eventually those muscle and fat tissues are formulated into a meat product that people can consume. So an example of that would be to take a blood sample of a pig. Would you need to take that sample um, in the part of the pig that you then want to grow the body, or can you go in and extract those cells after? So if you want to grow uh, a ham on a pig, do you need to take the shot of blood from that part of the pig, or how do you, how do you dissect that aspect of, of growth? Yeah, so um, I'll just kind of, the granularity of the... Um, types of stem cells that you can use. I'll just explain that quickly. So um, companies are basically using any type of stem cell that can form muscle fat or connective tissues that make up meat. Um, and there are a few different types that you can start from. So one of those types is an adult stem cell. Like uh, in the muscle, you have kind of your resident stem cells or really in any adult tissue, you have stem cells that are there to, um, you know, rejuvenate the, the tissue or organ in response to injuries, let's say, for instance. Um, so if you were to take uh, or try to create, let's say, you know, a certain cut of meat, if you're using that type of stem cell, it may be actually informative to take it from that location. There's some literature that suggests that if you take a region of uh, muscle biopsy from like a fast twitch muscle fiber area and then you, differ, you grow those cells um, in, in culture outside of the body, they'll actually be kind of uh, tend to go towards fast twitch muscle fiber and that can kind of 
maybe influence the met- metabolism or the, um, you know, maybe the texture of, of your actual meat product downstream. Uh, in the case of blood, so blood itself is not the starting material that you'd use as the stem cells, but we can use a technology that actually won the Nobel Prize a few years back. It's called um, cellular reprogramming. And essentially, you can take kind of any somatic cell, so any, any cell type of your body, really, skin, muscle, bone even, um, and then you can just use through genetic kind of manipulation, uh, or basically overexpression of key um, genes involved in embryonic development, you can transition those cells into an early state, and those are called induced pluripotent stem cells. And the location is, doesn't really matter too much for that. Okay, so these cells are dividing. You put uh, it into uh, onto some kind of scaffolding with all these nutrients so that then it grows into a piece of meat. What is the process from that to entering my mouth? Yeah, so I think, you know, the companies right now um, are working kind of on this uh, spectrum of sophistication of the product, right? So you can imagine that creation of something like a sausage or a chicken nugget would be a lot easier than to recapitulate, uh, you know, a fully marbled steak, let's say. Um, So the first products that will come out and that have been taste tested, um, so to be clear, these aren't available yet to consumers, but they have been taste tested, um, are unstructured products. And so in that that case, essentially, you can grow um, muscle tissue and fat kind of in parallel and then have, you know, your food scientists and chefs um, recombine them at a later stage to create those kind of unstructured products. In the case of a structured product, which is um, you know probably further down the line, just because it's technically more difficult, the idea is that you have this scaffold um, that is perhaps um, made of different materials, either edible or biodegradable, so they can be plant-based materials um, that eventually are part of the product that you eat. Um, but their kind of uh, you know biocompatibility and, and mechanical properties of the scaffold can help to dictate the differentiation of the stem cells that you put onto it. So you can imagine um, you know this future scenario of you know essentially seeding this naked scaffold with stem cells, and it's in a kind of a pre-de- predetermined pattern of where you want your fat and your muscle. And I think importantly, you know the. A lot of, from a scientific perspective, if you're working in the field of tissue engineering or, you know, trying to recreate organs, let's say, um, in that field, you have to try to create a functional tissue. And so it's very precise and and very challenging to do that. Um, But here it's a little easier because you really just want the organization of the fat and muscle in a spatial arrangement that recapitulates the kind of, uh, you know, sensory experience of eating meat. Um, So in that respect, it should hopefully be a little easier. This is amazing. <laughs> how did you um, how did you get into this? So you went straight from high school into undergrad into getting your PhD in neuroscience. How old are you, by the way? Uh, twenty eight. Twenty eight. And how did you transition from that into working on cell based meats? Yeah, it's definitely um, you know. Now that I think that I work primarily in the food industry, it's a little weird to say because it wasn't really necessarily on my radar until, you know, two years ago or so. Um, You know, but 
essentially what I did in graduate school, I, I used stem cells to model uh, neurodegenerative and neuromuscular disorders. And so while I was doing that work, I was using these human-induced pluripotent stem cells that I was discussing before. So we reprogrammed cells from patients with a disease in order to study that genetic disease. What does pluripotent mean? Um, that just means they have the ability to form any cell type of the body. Got so it. very similar to an embryonic stem cell. Um, and so what we would do is you know, try to study and model genetic disease by doing that. And you, you can then create muscle and in this case, neuronal tissues um, to study a, a neurodegenerative disease. And so I was making a lot of human skeletal muscle cells from human stem cells when I heard about these companies that were essentially doing the same thing, but you know, just for consumption of meat rather than modeling disease. I thought it was a really cool um, you know, idea that I hadn't heard of before. And also kind of when considering, you know, a career path, I always wanted to try to align myself with addressing things like climate change or something bigger. And that was a way to, to move into that space and really use you know, my skill sets to, to do that. Um, so uh, around, yeah, I'd say a year and a half ago, I decided like I really wanted to make a career out of this. And then um, there was a position at the Good Food Institute that was open and I had been following them for a while because they're fairly, um, you know, produce a lot of resources for the industry. Um, and I've been working there ever since. That's great, man. Yeah, I won't belager the point, but I think it is uh, important to note that you are addressing a huge problem through technology. Um, the number one contaminator of uh, fresh water in America is the uh, agricultural industry mm -hmm. through the manure and nitrates used on all of the crops. Um, people get sick from a lot of this contaminated water. Um, not to mention the literally billions of animals that are slaughtered every year for our consumption. It's, it's a massive problem that uh, needs to be addressed, and I don't see the world going vegan anytime soon. Um, so I, how, what is in the way of us transitioning to a world um, where most people are getting their protein from cell-based meats? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, as you mentioned, the traditional or conventional animal agriculture industry has a lot of things wrong with it, um, and it's just simply really not sustainable. Um, just to kind of reiterate, you know, in addition to some of the things that um, you mentioned, I think it's also important to bring up that, you know, global animal agriculture accounts for about 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the global population is expected to grow to about 9.7 billion people by 2050. Um, and as those countries um, rise uh, out of uh, poverty and increase their socioeconomic status, um, especially in the high growth regions like Africa and Oceania, um, their diets change and they demand more meat. And so the, the meat demand is supposed to increase by around 70 to 100 percent. And so if we don't change uh, by 2050, that is. Uh, so if we don't really change our practices, you know, we're really, you know, at risk of, of um, you know, runaway problems and all these negative externalities. And I think our theory of change, as you mentioned, is that you can't really make moral claims um, to make people really shift their diets. 
um, you know, despite making, you know, moral claims and people being aware of some of the problems with animal agriculture, antibiotic use, environmental degradation, biodiversity loss, all of those things, um, you know, this the flat percentages of vegans and vegetarians hasn't changed much in the past few decades. Dude, I'm aware of it. And when I got off a plane after a long flight, <laughs> I'm like, in and out, I need it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, you know, as a neuroscience uh, scientist, you're not always making the most logical choices. Yeah. So, our, yeah, and, and essentially the, the theory of change here is that if you can create meat products that people like um, from different methods, so out of plants or out of the cells directly cultivated from an animal without having to kill the animal. Um, and you can make those products compete on price, taste, and convenience, which are the main drivers of, of consumer preference and choice for, for food. Um, you really think, uh, we really think that you can start to shift diets in a, in a considerable way, um, not only in you know, westernized countries, but across the world, which is where we really need to you know, take hold. I would imagine that that shift will happen um, and very rapidly once you can bring this sort of technology to scale. Because when you look at all the costs associated with raising a single cow, all of the water, all of the food, uh, all of the waste, if you can create a, a cell-based um, ham you know, uh, and bring that to scale, it seems that you would have industry make that shift really quickly. Yeah, right. I mean, basically growing crops to feed to animals to then eat the animal is just a vastly inefficient process. A lot of the calories are just expended for normal life rather than growing a product that, that we can use. Um, and so, you know, if you take the chicken, for instance, as the best example, you, you know, for every about nine calories of feed that you feed a chicken, it produces one calorie of meat. So it's a vastly inefficient process. Um, what these companies that are doing um, in uh, both plant-based meat and and cell-based meat uh, production is really addressing that issue of scale. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know the cell-based meat products have been taste tested before, but it's really about scaling that up and bringing costs down. Um, right now, it's still quite expensive, but there's a roadmap I think technologically that you know we can reduce cost and see an economically viable um, potential there. Um, with plant-based products, interestingly, you know they're out there and they're um, you know pretty fairly easy to get now, although it's, it's, it's still difficult in some regions and it's getting easier. Um, but they also cost a bit more than their conventional counterparts still. And if you listen to companies like Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, which are kind of the flagship companies in this uh, area, they're saying that you know they actually can't meet the demand right now from the factories that they have. So it, it takes a while to you know produce a factory that can output the amount of volume that you need to compete with the, uh, the meat industry, especially in the United States. Um, and so scaling right now is a huge issue, even for the plant-based companies hmm. as well. How do you make a plant-based burger? Yeah, so... I think um, you know people are still becoming familiarized with this concept of plant-based versus like what is a traditional veggie burger, right? So, veggie burgers like a Boca burger or something like that, those were catered um, to vegans and vegetarians. They weren't really designed to replicate meat. Here, it's different. So. The companies that I mentioned before, they're kind of the flagship companies. They're both founded around the same time. And they're really trying to biomimic meat from the ground up. So, you know, meat, if you break it down, it's really just, uh, you know, lipids, protein, um, micronutrients, and water. And you can get all of those from plants. 
And so what's really interesting is, you know, they try to replicate the sensory and, and kind of organoleptic properties of meat, not only taste, but the texture too. And so what you do with these plant proteins, you can kind of isolate them and they go through a machine called uh, an extruder in most cases, where they're subjected to kind of high pressure and temperature changes that breaks down the proteins and allows you to align them in a fibrous manner that kind of replicates the texture of meat. And then you can kind of mix in other things like fats from plants like coconut oil or sunflower oil or different oils that have different properties um, that allow them to bind and gel together into a meat product. And then finally, um, in Impossible Foods case, their kind of uh, claim to fame is this in, uh, ingredient called heme. So heme is an iron-containing molecule found in your body, but also in the bodies of pretty much every organism on Earth. Uh, but it's also found in plants. And so what Impossible Foods did was um, use this heme-carrying protein from a soy plant, and they ferment that in yeast. So in the same way that you would produce insulin um, in, in a bacterial cell, you can produce that gene uh, in a yeast cell. And that allows it to carry iron. It has the same bioavailability when you eat it. Um, and it has that kind of bloody aroma that meat eaters love. I haven't had an Impossible Burger yet, but I've heard exactly that. Yeah. People eat it and they say, this tastes exactly like a hamburger. Yeah, and that's exactly what separates these companies from the past, is that they're really making products that are catered to carnivores or people that love to eat meat. And um, yeah, it, I... I, um, you know, I went vegetarian a year ago when I started uh, this job. I was already trying to eat less meat, um, but certainly it's it's a lot easier now to do that because these products really replicate meat so well. Um, right. yeah. So, what does your business do uh, specifically? You do you work with companies to help them? Uh, get on the meat alternatives and cell-based uh, alternative uh, cell-based meats like what how does that uh, interaction uh, actually happen yeah so we kind of serve as a as a hub really for this entire industry so just briefly um, the good food Institute we're a global nonprofit so we're entirely philanthropically backed um, and we were founded about three and a half years ago but we've expanded to about uh, probably over 80 full-time employees now, so quite rapid growth um, because of the interest in this space, really. And our mission is really just to kind of leverage cutting-edge technology and markets to uh, accelerate the transition away from conventionally produced animal agriculture towards these plant-based and cell-based meat, eggs, and dairy products. And so we do that in a variety of different ways. Um, I sit on the science and technology team. Um, we're a team of you know around 10 PhDs from a variety of different backgrounds. We really try to sit, uh, analyze the industry, kind of identify the technical bottlenecks that we know exist in terms of things like scaling um, and supply chains and things like that. And we try to then uh, mobilize funding to address those problems ahead of time. So things that are 20 years out or 10 years out, you know, we can start doing ground level research now and identifying the people to do those research products or um, pro projects. projects. And um, so we also c communicate with life science companies um, and, and educate them about this space so they can start, you know, developing their own products that will hopefully feed in the supply chain to those markets. Um, our team also consists of uh, an innovation team um, where they're focused on entrepreneurship. So if people want to start companies in this space, we create a lot of resources for them to familiarize themselves with the industry, connect them to investors, things like that. 
Um, we have a corporate engagement department that works um, with large food manufacturers, restaurant chains, grocery stores. We go out and educate them on you know, the consumer trends, but also how to get these products um, strategically on their menus, on their shelves, or to reformulate their products without animal ingredients. Um, and then finally, we have a policy department that is basically in charge of um, helping to clear a smooth path to market for um, these products as they come to market. And then in the case of cell-based meat, which isn't on the market yet, um, we do a lot of communication with the FDA and the USDA, at least in the United States, um, around just preparing them for what's coming and trying to get those uh, frameworks worked out ahead of time. Um, and then the last thing is that we now have are building out teams in Brazil, Israel, um, India, the Asia Pacific region, um, based in Hong Kong, and then also Europe. So we're really trying to recapitulate what we have done in the United States, just on a global scale. Right. And are you interacting with traditional uh, meat companies like Tyson Foods? Yeah, so um, it's something that gets asked a lot. And interestingly enough, Tyson and some of the other biggest meat um, you know, names in the industry, Cargill, um, PHW, they've actually invested in companies in this space in both the plant-based products and cell-based meat product um, companies. Um, and so, yeah, we do go out and, and communicate with them um, and educate them and work with them. Um, and they're highly interested in this industry. They don't want to become, you know, the next Kodak, essentially, right? That's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> you can use that on them. <laughs> yeah, I think actually one of the... Um, the uh, um, ex-CEOs now of Tyson actually said that uh, in, a, in a news article. You know, they're quite aware of the trends that are currently occurring and they want a piece of that pie because they're already rebranding as protein companies. So, it, you know, the, the kind of a analogy there is um, if you look at kind of oil and gas companies, they when they came under fire for, you know, their oil spills and some of the environmental problems, they rebranded as energy companies. We're, which is, be, we're um, not British Petroleum. We're <laughs> beyond petroleum. Yeah, they rebranded and they they said oh now we're doing energy because it's there's no you know negative connotation there and now the meat companies are saying we're we're producing protein um, so they already are kind of preparing themselves in a way for the shifts that are kind of starting to happen great I I, I think that that is um, very important I watched uh, I, I think it was Food Inc where they had the Walmart employees talk about how because of consumer demand, Walmart is now the largest seller of organic foods globally. Okay. And you can hate on Walmart all you want, but when that company makes such a large purchase, you can't say that it's not going to shift the market in a substantial way. Yeah, it's super important. You know, they have all these pre-existing supply chains. They have the, the consumers already that trust their brands. Like, it's super important to be able to tap into that um, and not, you know, make enemies out of the existing players in the game. Because ultimately, I think, um, you know, they want to also feed the world. Um, and I think that's what can unite these kind of two industries yeah. moving forward. Where have you seen the most pushback because a lot of these meat companies um, will heavily finance uh, elections to get their candidates uh, into office so that the candidates will create subsidies for a crop like corn, allow them to sell their products more cheaply. Um, have you noticed any, um, you know, any kind of pushback from these companies or any other players in the game to try and slow this transition from happening? 
Yeah, I think not, not in respect to like the companies by name, um, you know, who knows if there's behind the scenes things that isn't out there that's driving some of the things. But I think in respect to the lobbying groups that represent, you know, the industry as a whole. So in the United States, you know, you have the Dairy Lobby and the National Cattlemen's Association and some other kind of beef related lobbies um, that are most interested in protecting their interests. And um, the way that they seem, seem to be doing that now is through, um, you know, promoting state uh, legislation that prevents labeling of competing products um, as meat. And so people in the U.S. can can look this up online. It's pretty easy by Google now, but um, Missouri and Mississippi are kind of two examples of states that have passed um, bills that are coming into law that basically prevent labeling of these plant-based and in some cases cell-based meat products as meat, even if they say, um, you know, plant-based or 100% vegan, et cetera. Um, so there are also additionally like 10 other states that have done that, that haven't, um, I think been either signed into law yet or come as far as the other ones. But, um, interestingly enough, a lot of states have tried to do this and it seems to be driven largely by those, um, kind of lobbying interests behind the scenes. Um, so the law is that you cannot say veggie hot dog. You can't use the word hot dog in your branding if it's not made from meat. Is that correct? Yeah, and and the wording um, is is slightly varied by each state, um, but essentially that's the that's the gist. Is if it um, is it can only be meat if it's made from animals, and and the thing that doesn't really make sense there, aside from just the nomenclature type of um, you know consumers not really being confused by those terms is that in the case of cell-based meat, like you're using real animal cells. So it is real animal meat. Um, and people that are allergic to shellfish or, or seafood, for instance, they're still going to be allergic to this. Um, there's cases now in the United States where people can develop an allergy to red meat from the Lone Star tick. Um, if you get bit by this one species of tick, you can develop this meat allergy, which I don't think is scientifically understood why. But for those people, you know, you can't... The vegans engineered it. Be, yeah. It's some uh, deep ploy by the deep vegan uh, <laughs> lobby. Um, Dark vegan lobby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's super interesting because, I mean, that's one of the points that you can't really get around that ultimately you're eating animal flesh. Um, it's just not from a slaughtered animal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so these laws going into effect would also um, have an effect on cell-based meats, additionally to plant-based proteins. Is that correct? Yeah, in some cases. So the, even though cell-based meat products aren't even on the market yet, they're like looking forward to um, you know preventing them from That's an easy path to market. Bullshit. Which is, yeah, it's it's pretty. Um, you know, it's pretty messed up, right? Like, it would basically prevent you from selling those products in those states. And, you know, those are big markets. Man. Yeah. Are you also um, working on fish alternatives? Um, there's a great TED Talk that I watched a while ago by, um, gosh, what's his name? Something Green... Green, gosh, it's called Four Fish. Have you read that book Not or familiar, heard the TED no. Talk? It's basically about how our... Uh, fish market has been reduced down to just four types of fish because that's what industry has pushed and that's what people want. And to re-diversify, to diversify the different types of fish that we eat mm -hmm. is uh, a path to uh, sustain to sustainability. Um, but he also talks about how fish, by 
the numbers, by the weight, is one of the best ways that you can get protein because of how quickly they breed, how many there right. are. Are you working on um, alternatives to fish as well? Yeah, so at least, you know, from an organizational perspective, um, you know, if you look at the products that are on the market that are made of plants today, like it's mainly burgers and things like that. And so um, certainly things like seafood and and chicken are things that we're highly focused on driving forward um, because ultimately, you know, you're killing billions and billions more animals when you produce protein in in that method. Um, but yeah, seafood's particularly important and interesting. You know, I think over 90% of, of fisheries are either overfished or fully fished out. Um, and we're, we're basically, you know, running out of, uh, you know, available commercial fishing. And so a lot of things have switched to aquaculture. Um, but aquaculture has its own problems. Um, namely, uh, you know, when you confine animals to a small environment, um, it's at the kind of, uh, you know, subtraction of animal welfare and, and that, provides you with the, you know, essentially makes you kind of use, have to use antibiotics and things like that, um, in kind of confined conditions. And so there are some laws in, in certain countries that do a fair job at regulating that, but a lot of aquaculture is done in, um, you know, Southeast Asia and in Asia Pacific region where those laws don't exist. And so antibiotic use is, is rampant in those areas. Um, but yeah, in terms of, um, plant-based seafood, so there are a few companies that are working on this now that are trying to make products, um, like from tuna, um, to different shellfish and things like that. Um, on the cell-based meat side of things, there are companies that exist now that are dedicated, um, strictly to making seafood products. Um, there's a company called Shiok Meats in Singapore that's making shrimp. Um, in San Diego, there's a company called Blue Nalu, um, which is trying to, like, I think, work on uh, tuna and mahi-mahi and some other uh, kind of large fish species that you can't really aquaculture well because they're apex predators, especially tuna uh, in particular. And then there's companies in the bay called Finless Foods and Wild Type. Um, Finless Foods is also working on tuna fish, and then Wild Type is working on salmon. Um, so what's cool about cell-based meat, at least, you know, they are mainly focused on kind of, um, let's say higher market, um, you know, fish products that you can sell at a higher price point because, um, you, that's the easiest way to introduce a product when you don't have the economies of scale yet eventually. Um, but essentially once you figure that out, how to do that, you can serve as a platform for the whole variety of fish species. So you're not really limited technologically to just creating salmon. It makes it a lot easier to create every other fish species as well. Have there been conversations about how cell-based meats uh, and fish are going to be marketed to the public when they are uh, on the grocery shelves? Do you think it's going to be a similar market play as Elon Musk introducing the Tesla as a premium product? Yeah, I think that's the kind of the model that these companies are are a little bit after. Um, So I think you may actually see as early as this year um, in marketplaces that do not um, restrict the release of these cell-based meat products, at least Um, in Singapore and Hong Kong, particularly uh, the release of a product at a very kind of luxury type of price point just to say that we can do it. Um, And then I think, you know, the uh, kind of, Fish market is especially will will follow that path, um, and then unstructured products like fish sticks or something like that may may follow. Um, you can also create, I think, blends may may happen in this industry as well. So you know, perhaps something is fifteen percent cell based, but then the rest is plant protein. 
um, once these, you know, when the scale isn't quite there yet. Um, and it's then like eventually, the yeah, eventually you just, you know, kind of get more and more cell based, uh, until it makes economic sense for these companies to be able to do that. Um, and then in terms of marketing, uh, what these plant-based product, um, companies are trying to do. So Beyond Meat is in retail. They sell burgers. Um, but a lot of the times now they want their product placed in the meat aisle itself, um, which is really important selling point. Um, more products get sold if you can actually place them next to their conventional counterparts. So the kind of future that you imagine is, you know, if you're shopping for fish, you could see your cell-based meat fish alongside the, the fish at your grocery store, but perhaps that says no antibiotics and no plastics and no mercury that are in the process. And, and if it competes on that price, taste, and convenience, then hopefully consumers make that, you know, conscious choice that, you know, you're getting all these benefits at the same price and cost. That's great, man. And no suffering, too. The fact that the meat industry has had to implement laws to make it so that it is illegal to film inside the slaughterhouses right. says it all. Yeah, they even they just refer to those as kind of the ag gag laws, right? Yeah. That have been passed in several states, and um, yeah, certainly the cell based meat companies are fully aware of that, and they can use that as kind of a benefit. Um, I think you you if you look at interviews from some of the CEOs of these companies, they actually say like you know we'll film our production line or we'll have it behind glass walls, and you can come and see and maybe even tour a facility um, in the same way that you'd tour a, a brewery to get you know a beer. Um, you could do that in a future kind of meat factory right. um, in the same way. So I would imagine that the blowback that you might receive from the public is cell based meats grown in a petri dish, Ugh, yuck, yeah. that sounds gross. <laughs> Are there any dangers to cell-based meats? And what would you say to that um, emotional, uh, emotional response that people might have? Yeah, it's definitely something that faces you know, the industry from a marketing perspective. Um, people don't like scientists playing around with their food, especially if they don't really understand the process. So part of that is educating the public and getting them aware and up to speed on, you know, hey, this isn't that scary. You know, we do this for the production of every, like a lot of different things that we use in, in food and, and in medicine. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, in terms of uh, kind of the kind of synthetic feel to it, um, the consumer research that has been done uh, suggests that um, different regions are are more likely to be open to this um, for different reasons. So actually in the West, you see lower responses for likely to try or more, most likely to try than you do in China and India, where India you know, has this kind of tradition of, of vegetarianism due to their religion. Um, China is, you know, from a governmental perspective, wants to reduce meat consumption by 50% by 2050, even though that seems challenging. So these people in those regions may be more um, accepting off the bat um, for those uh, for these products, um, which is interesting. Um, it's interesting what you said about India from the religious aspect. I wonder how that population would um, react to cell-based meats. Yeah, we're trying to get a, an understanding of that. You know, we have a team in India that's done a little bit of the consumer research, but certainly more needs to be done. Um, you know, it has a, a high vegetarian population, but it also has a high meat-eating population now, and increasingly so. Um, so people there want to eat meat as well. Uh, it's interesting if you know if they would eat cow meat grown um, from cell-based uh, uh, processes. I'm not sure how how that works out. Um, 
but yeah, so the the kind of regional differences I think are going to be interesting um, for adoption. You know, who says the West has to you know particularly take this on first for it to to win? Um, and then you asked about safety, so I think. Uh, the FDA and the USDA in the United States have agreed to jointly regulate this product. So essentially, um, we don't know the granularity of the details yet. We're, we're waiting on that. But essentially, from the point of you know harvesting that biopsy to growing the cells and differentiating them into muscle and fat, that is will be monitored by the FDA. They have the most familiarity with um, you know how that process looks through the production of you know, drugs and uh, vaccines and things like that. It's a very kind of similar process there. Um, and then the, at that point of harvest where it's kind of packaged into a meat product, the USDA takes over because that's their specialty. Um, and essentially they both want to ensure that the product's safe. And so um, that includes kind of checking for contamination during the process. Um, there are very sophisticated ways now that you can use to keep this a near sterile process, which again doesn't require antibiotics, which is a huge benefit. Um, and those are adopted from these other industries that I mentioned, and they're pretty well established. Um, so the kind of risk of contamination is always there, but it'll be fairly obvious if it product is contaminated. Right. Do you have any E. coli risk of, of contamination? Because that's the big one with conventional meats, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, that's a potentially huge benefit of this um, process as well, right? So foodborne illness is, is huge for, for meat because essentially, you know, a lot of the times during the slaughtering process, you have these kind of enteric bacteria, E. coli, salmonella, um, Campylobacter they, that can cause get on the product and then eventually cause sickness to consumers, but those aren't in the process at all. Um, so there's a risk of that being introduced during um, shipping and packaging and things like that. Um, but otherwise, it should be a kind of completely near sterile product, which um, should reduce the amount of foodborne illness incidents, but could also assist in you know increasing the lifespan or the the shelf life of a product. Um, because there's no bacteria that will increase the kind of spoilage rate, especially for things like fish, which has, you know, easily spoils and things like that. You have to transport that on ice. Um, so you imagine you can save a lot of energy costs not having to transport these things on ice across the countries or across on shipping, um, uh, you know, across oceans. Um, and so, you know, it has a potentially rippling benefits, not just for foodborne illness, but for like energy and, and greenhouse gas emissions too. How uh, far away would you say, like, if you had to predict until um, we are primarily eating this product, these cell-based meats? Yeah, I know so, it's hard to say because there are a lot of factors, but man, I'm just so happy that I met you and I'm really excited to be learning about all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a super exciting time. There's still a lot of work to be done. I think, um, you know... Like I talked about too, like with even with the plant-based products, meeting this, the demand right now is is challenging. And yet, in the United States, the plant-based meat market makes up less than one percent of the meat that's eaten and consumed. So there's a lot of room for growth and a lot of growing to do from an industry perspective, supply chain perspective, et cetera. Um, so that's some of the forecasting work that we do um, as, a, as an organization or that we're trying to get a handle on. So to predict, you know, how can we accelerate that transition? I think, um, you know, the first products for on, from the cell-based meat side of things are going to be probably released maybe this year, as I mentioned. Um, and then, but, you know, for wider distribution and consumer availability, it's going to be several years after that. I feel safe in saying more along like the 
seven year time frame. Uh, companies in this space, I think, will say three to five years um, generally that they'll have products out. Um, and then it's just a matter of really gaining consumer trust and making these affordable and competing on those kind of things that we talked about before. Hey, man, I mean, I hope we can get there faster, but I think um, our goal is really to have you know, the dominant market share by 2050 with these alternative type of products. And oh. that's what we're kind of um, reaching for. Is there anything that people can do to support this process to move along more quickly besides buy the product when it's out? Yeah, I think that's the best uh, the best way to go out there, try the products, talk about them. And if you don't like it, you know, somehow communicate that on Twitter or even, you know, people are paying attention to the, to the feedback um, and, and these companies are constantly reformulating um, to, to meet those kind of higher standards of, uh, of taste and things like that. Um, yeah, I think buying the products is one of the best ways that the average consumer can really do this um, and incorporating more of those plant-based or other products in their diets. Um, it doesn't mean you have to go vegetarian or vegan, um, but there's a huge kind of market uh, uh, for flexitarians or, you know, people that are considering themselves wanting to eat less meat. Um, flexitarian. And, yeah. So you kind of call that the, the flexitarian, um, uh, crowd there or the freegans and I they're vegan <laughs> unless it's free. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I think, um, more people are going to adopt that sort of lifestyle because, you know, we've grown so accustomed to cheap meat products and it seems so, um, reasonable the way we do it. But if you take a step back and you really kind of understand how, you know, meat is produced and, uh, you know, it used to be a luxury type of thing and all that stuff. And, but we can have meat now and in just a different way. Um, and so, you know, why not switch, I guess. Um, I would imagine that you could be in a different industry and use your mind and make probably a lot more money. Um, but when you decide to do this, um, when did you start to, when did you decide that you wanted to use your skills on behalf of something bigger? Was there a moment for you that you decided to go down this path? I, I'm really curious about how that this came to be? Yeah, I guess it's kind of a combination of um, two things. Uh, one is that, you know, as I was reading more and more about, you know, climate change and, you know, all these, you know, what's what's coming and what we know, um, I wanted to figure out a way to align my career with that. Um, and this was like kind of the really nice opportunity. Um, it's such an interdisciplinary field that impacts so many of the things that we discussed. It's a way to have a huge impact. Um, another side of the coin is that, you know, in another life, I'd be kind of working as a bench scientist um, doing kind of drug discovery for neurodegenerative disease. And I think, you know, what, what kind of drove me away from that was understanding and realizing that we still don't truly understand how these diseases work um, and, and really how to go about treating them. I think we're still quite far away from developing you know, a small molecule type of therapy that's going to be really efficacious for any type of really neurodegenerative disease um, that is uh, age-related. What's a small molecule treatment? Just like a, any, like a drug, basically, mm -hmm. that you take that's not like um, an antibody or something like that, just uh, really a, a small molecule. I guess it sounds like a, a non-specific term, but it's actually kind of what's used in the industry. So yeah, like a chemical um, that can be used as a treatment. 
Um, and so in a way like this cell based meat thing is just so much more tangible. Like even though, you know, it's not out there now as a, as a product, people have taste tested it. My colleagues, some of them have actually tried these products. Um, and so I think that being there and being able to really see the development of that industry and, and being there from the start is really attractive. You know, it's, it's not, um, it's interesting from a scientific perspective. There's a lot of interesting science challenges um, to address in that industry. Um, and it's a way to potentially, you know, make a lot of money if you're starting a company in this space. You know, there's a huge market potential here um, and, a, and a way to also kind of have that bigger impact. And those three things all together is what kind of people want out of a career, right? Yeah, and you've done a really beautiful job laying out all of those issues and how this solution checks off so many of them. I, I think that that's really cool. It's a, it's a single solution that you are, can use your skills on behalf of that then addresses climate change. It, address, it addresses the growing population. It addresses the um, moral, uh, the more, you know, the, yeah. the morality of slaughtering billions of animals a year. I've heard very smart people um, talk about how we will be judged harshly yeah. by yeah. future generations. Um, based off of how we treat all of the pigs and chicken and uh, cows every single day. Yeah, it's 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 so um, as I mentioned, it's like interdisciplinary. It brings people from all different motivations: the animal welfare scene, the environmental scene, the human health side of things. Um, and you know, I think using the term "silver bullet" or "magic bullet" is like a, maybe like a little bit too dangerous. But I mean, I really do feel that. You know these methods um, are the way to really make a change because up until this point, um, again, using those moral claims just hasn't been effective at all. And the, the direction that we're headed, um, unless we take significant action, um, is 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 looking kind of grim. Yeah. <laughs> so. Have do you have any idea what organizations like PETA think about cell-based meats? Um, I have some idea. So PETA. Particularly, they actually have, um, I think, a million-dollar prize that they had released like a decade ago that was a reward for the first person to release a cell-based meat product. So they're really supportive of it. Um, I think in general, most of these kind of non-NGOs that have you know been around for a while generally support um, this industry and this kind of approach to uh, you know meat alternatives. Let's say there are some environmental groups that feel that it's not the best way to go about things, and I think their science is not the best, uh, or their their kind of understanding of of the potential there is not the best. Um, so there has been some weird type of pushback, um, even from I think. It, I think Impossible Foods um, got pushed back from PETA, interestingly enough, because they ended up testing that ingredient heme that I mentioned before. They had to do some animal testing there. Hmm. Um, so, you know, even though this has the you know potential to reduce the suffering of you know billions of animals over time, just the fact that they had to do a, you know a 200 rat study or something for safety purposes to get approved was enough to kind of you know ruffle, ruffle the feathers of PETA, which I I think is. Um, misinformed personally. Yeah, it's a myopic yeah. understanding. It's yeah. yeah I mean, I um, I am an avid bow hunter um, and have kind of fallen into this world just through my interest in the outdoors. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, it's I, I've never gotten into a sport that had such um, 
moral consequences. It's not yeah. like you get into tennis and then you all of a sudden have entire groups lobbying against you and for <laughs> you and people make all these judgments about you. But um, I will say that one thing I've learned from the experience is a kind of closeness to where my meat comes from sure. and um, to take accountability for killing an animal is not something that I take lightly. And I think that if more people um, had that experience of choosing to kill an animal and watching it die and really feeling the gravity of that situation, they would reduce their meat consumption. Um, yeah. And I think that it is that one step of disconnection that we have in our world that is is what allows a lot of um, the worst... Um, the worst stuff to happen, whether it's the the slaughtering of billions of animals, or um, you, know, you can take that out to human trafficking. You know, it wouldn't happen if you were able to see that face on the other side. Sure. You know, so I think that uh, it's great. What I, I loved what you said earlier about um, offering to have people come take tours of cell-based mm -hmm. meat facilities and using. Uh, using glass windows. Yeah, yeah, the transparency aspect. But I, I totally agree that, you know, what you just said about, you know, trying to learn where, you know, you get connected in a way if you're if you're actually, you know, slaughtering an animal yourself in a way that, you know, familiarizes yourself with the process and people just go to the supermarket and they see something in a plastic wrap and they're totally disconnected from it. And that's by design, obviously, right? Uh, you know, that's um, most consumers don't want to face that and, and confront that. Um, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think, uh, you know, personally, I don't have real problems with eating meat or hunting or, or things like that. You know, I used to fish as a kid all the time out on the lake and um, I didn't feel like I was committing any moral sins per se. Um, but certainly because fish don't have eyebrows, <laughs> <laughs> can't well, scream. fish don't have feelings either. Right. <laughs> uh, apparently, um, which I think is not true at all. Um, right. Um, but yeah, so I think, um, I think there's still like a lot of, uh, lessons to be learned that, uh, like you talked about that are, um, informative from raising animals and, and, and going hunting or something like that. Um, I get asked a lot, you know, are you trying to just decimate the farmer and farming jobs and in, in the cattle industry? And um, are you, is this ever going to, is this even going to exist in the future? And I think, you know, in some ways you can imagine the existence of like a niche market where you have these kind of, um, you know, grass fed beef or something that live these happy lives um, to some degree, right? Way, way better, at least um, from a welfare perspective than currently um, is practiced. And I think there'll probably be that niche market for a while where people still have this demand for a high-end um, you know, product that perhaps isn't quite there, can be replicated nicely enough by some of these kind of alternatives that we discussed. Um, and then hunting, I think, um, is probably still going to remain to some degree, right, for for a while, there's nothing stopping people from from doing that. Sure, um, I mean it's also it's for the recreational aspect yeah. of it and enjoying the great outdoors. It's not. I mean, if I were uh, paying for the meat that I get while I hunt, uh, you know, and flying to Hawaii to go <laughs> boar hunting, I, it would probably be about one hundred and fifty dollars a pound, <laughs> yeah. um, considering all the expenses. But I think that the jobs argument is um, it's it's the same disingenuous argument that I think a lot of like coal miners make it right. you know it doesn't if if your industry is having such a negative impact on the rest of the world uh we should innovate out of that and yeah. there's no 
set number of jobs that are available in the world. And cell-based meats are going to create a whole new line of jobs that we didn't know about before. So I mean, it's, it's a bit of the horse and carriage argument. I, yeah, I totally feel the same way. Um, I think, you know, as we, uh, you know, automate a lot of our jobs, a lot of the jobs in this industry at least will be fairly highly technical. Um, there's certainly not going to be as many jobs available perhaps. Um, but there's a more opportunity, I think, you know, for farmers that grow crops, um, you know, instead of having to grow soy and corn only or something like that, now you can use pea and other, um, legume type proteins and pulse crops that will feed into this plant-based meat market that's going to grow. Um, so there's opportunities there for farmers to kind of, um, recalibrate how they do their farming. Um, and, and in the future, the models for farmers might change, um, you know, in California, there's kind of a program that pays farmers to grow crops that specifically aim to regenerate the soil um, that are kind of government funded. And so, uh, you know, programs like that may be a way for farmers to make livelihoods um, based off of their land that they own. Do you know what the program is um, called? Um, not off the top of my head. Yeah, people um, can I was, Google I it. was just kind of at a um, XPRIZE headquarters is down here in Culver City. They had like an ideation thing around the future of food. Um, a lot of different experts from a variety of um, uh, kind of backgrounds there in agriculture were there. And um, that was one of the things that I heard as, as was talked about a lot. Like soil restoration is apparently a, a really important, you know, I'm still learning about, uh, you know, <laughs> farming and stuff like that. I, I don't know too much about it, but it seems to be a, a pretty um, important area to additionally address. Absolutely. Um, moving forward. Um, so, yeah. And then and then you look at historical trends, um, you know what, yeah, 200 years ago, 70% of the, you know, people in the U.S. or something were, were farming or involved in agriculture, and now it's less than 2%. Um, and so, in a way, it's just kind of a, a trend that's been occurring for a while. Right. Yeah, I, uh, along the lines of agriculture and uh, soil restoration and pesticides, um, I did a, a documentary out on Hawaii a couple of years ago um, on a lot of the GMO protests that were happening out mm -hmm. there. And this is a subject that gets so convoluted so quickly and that, you know, GMOs are evil or GMOs are going to save the world. But the thing that I've found that's important to delineate is that um, it's not just GMOs that people in Hawaii are against. It's the pesticides that are used and the... Uh, level of pesticides that are used all year long on these crops right. that are just used the crops are on Hawaii are not even used for human consumption they're used for to be shipped off for animal consumption right. um, so that we can slaughter them and then make the meat <laughs> out of them so it's this whole vicious cycle interesting um, and it and you know Hawaii is a spot that imports over 90% of its food, even though they have some of the most fertile ground in the entire world. It's, it's amazing. So you can add that to your another feather in your cap of a problem that you'll be yeah, solving with yeah. cell-based meats. Well, it's interesting that you brought up, um, you know, the import of food and like food security, basically, right, as, as climate change happens and, and how do these kind of island nations or, um, you know, how do they address their food supply? Um, and I think a good example of that is Singapore. So, for instance, I think they import 94% of their food. Um, and their government has just recently announced a um, $144 million fund, um, part of which is specifically aimed at developing cell-based meat technologies and helping that industry occur because they want to, they realize that, okay, you don't need all this land to grow meat anymore. You can just have it in a factory with a very small 
uh, land and environmental footprint, we can do this at in Singapore and save ourselves money and security uh, around food in the future of our you know society. So we we think that governments have a, a, a strong role to play um, as well for you know the interests um, not just from f- food security but for all the other things that we we discussed. And um, ultimately, we need a lot more money uh, that's that will fill into this industry. It's one thing that. I didn't mention, but I mean, you hear about this a lot on the news, perhaps, but in reality, there's only been like $100 million of venture private capital that's been injected into this market. And to commercialize, you know, the cell-based meat products, that is, um, you know, we're probably going to need hundreds of millions and dozens of billions of dollars. And, uh, you know, some of that money is going to have to come from governments. And I think they'd be wise to, to take the lead um, in this kind of industry that has so much potential. Yeah. Dude, we got to get you on Joe Rogan's podcast. The world <laughs> needs to hear this. Yeah, and more people need to hear about it. So thanks for, uh, you know, certainly I'm happy to, you know, that you had me on the podcast and a chance to share the uh, the message there. Yeah, I'm really happy that you reached out to me, man. Um, I just, just a couple more questions because I'm so curious about, you're a very interesting human. Um, did you always know that you wanted to get into neuroscience from a young age? Um, no, not really, actually. I was always scientifically, like, inclined, I guess. Like, I always found that most interesting, but there's really no rhyme or reason, like, that I can pinpoint, um, why I got into neuroscience. Um, I went to Lehigh University for undergrad. It's kind of a small liberal arts college out in Pennsylvania, mainly business and engineering school, and I think one of their three kind of bio majors was behavioral neuroscience, um, so that's just what was intriguing at the time. Um, and then in, for grad school, I specifically wanted to work on stem cell biology, mainly in the context of like regenerative medicine. I thought that was really cool. Um, and then I just wound up in a neuroscience lab. Uh, so I, I just kind of stuck with the neuroscience as my kind of foundational training. So a lot of what I know about cell biology is in the context of neuroscience. Um, although it's funny though, because I, I wouldn't really consider myself a neuroscientist, um, cause I just don't practice a lot of the things that um, people that do imaging and circuit-based type of work really, really do. I'm more of like a cell biologist. I I never (laughs) thought I'd be flipping burgers for a living. That's what I did. I I was flipping burgers one summer at McDonald's, actually. So, uh, you know, in some way it's come full circle. Started from McDonald's, (laughs) now we're here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, working in the food industry now is is really interesting. Um, There's just so much I didn't know and so much I learn every day about systems, uh, you know, global systems of food and supply chains. It's really interesting um, to learn about like this new sector. And I think, you know, to the point is that, you know, if you are someone listening that, you know, is doing tissue engineering or biology or something that seems unrelated, but this is really interesting to you, like there's an opportunity there because it has, it requires um, the, the knowledge and expertise of just so many different disciplines. Um, there's a lot of potential to participate in this um, and have an impact. Has this work um, swayed you at all in your political beliefs? Would you say that it's made you more of a free market capitalist, or would you say that um, it's made you more of um, someone who leans more towards regulation and government oversight? If it's, at all. It's I, interesting. I, I, yeah. I haven't really thought about it deeply like that. Um, haven't really considered it. I don't think my views have changed too much. Like I think there's certainly a role for, you know, strong regulation in, in the context of create, creation of food um, and, and things like that. Um, but I also believe that, you know, 
you know, in a way that, you know, you should have these companies compete um, in a kind of capitalistic uh, view and, and background for creating a product that's really what's going to accelerate this um, to the top in a, in a faster way. Um, you know, we can't just kind of pigeonhole these um, things through regulation. We kind of got to let them have the freedom to operate um, and innovate, really, across right. these sectors. Um, I guess one thing that I'd mentioned is, is just like the, I think the technologies that will be developed from doing this, uh, this type of work and in commercializing these products will probably have rippling effects across other industries. So there's a lot of overlap between like the cell therapy field, which is just getting kind of big now, um, you know, using cells to treat disease. Um, cancer immunotherapy is just one example of that and really the same kind of problems that are being worked on by these companies um in the cell-based meat field are, are going to i think um hopefully have uh, positive effects throughout those industries as well yeah no i would imagine so and going back to my question i think that it is a combination of both and as you said at the beginning that this law in missouri is um it's disingenuous because it's anti-free market right yeah. you know it, it's and it's it's uh being born out of um, trying to trying to create an environment where there's not er real earnest competition, but um, I can't wait for the day that I go to Mickey D's and I order a cell based patty. Yeah, I'm waiting as well. I, I'll be there right with you. <laughs> right on, man. Um, well, hey, where can people get in touch with you or uh, learn more about your work? Yeah, so um, if they want to connect with me, I think Twitter's a good spot. It's at Elliot Swartz. Um, if you want to read some of the kind of in-depth science stuff, I've been kind of mapping that out, uh, ElliotSwartz.com. Um, and then just about our organization is GFI.org. Um, so you can check out kind of all the resources that we create. Everything's open source. It's made to educate, you know, the consumer but the industry as well um so go check that out that's great and um you mentioned some of those uh grant opportunities as well for people who may want to get into this industry can they find all of that on the website yeah actually so you know at the graciousness of some of our donors they wanted to fund research in this space and so last year we launched a grant program um where we funded three million dollars of research um in plant-based and cell-based meat key technology areas this year we're hoping to make that uh, five million dollars um, and so if you're in a lab you're a postdoc um, or your 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 um, professor is, is interested in this um, you know those opportunities will become available uh, probably later this fall we'll have an announcement and you can see that on our website for sure Elliot thank you so much yeah thanks for having me thank you so much for listening everyone if you liked it share it with a friend Give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, MOFA's merch is out now. So if you want shirts, cups, or bags, you can go to motherfuckerawards.com. Just click the link right below this podcast. And if you want to learn more about my work, you can go to kyle.surf. Kyle.surf is where you can sign up for my weekly email. Uh, it's where you can check out my written articles, my documentaries, other podcasts. It's also where you can write comments. So if you have a guest recommendation, a good way to do it and ensure that I will see it is to go to the podcast section on my website. Uh, click on one of the episodes and write a comment there. Um, so you could say, hey, I want you to get this guy on while you're down in L.A. or that gal or you know i think that you should stop doing podcasts because it's just horrible and it's a waste of your time and i don't know why people listen to it but i'm still listening to it but i just wanted to let you know that i 
hate you so much I decided to listen to a whole hour-long episode and then tell you. Uh, so if you don't want to do any of that stuff, you can go to my website. And with that, I'm going to play you out with a song called Three Foot Tires and Rising by Oppo, and I will link to their band page in the show notes. If you're a musician and you want your music played, send it to me, info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send the voice memos. So if you're driving right now, just record 30 seconds of audio on your phone. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and maybe I'll play it at the beginning of the show. That's it for now. Hope you all have a wonderful day, and thank you so much for stopping by my little corner of the universe. See you later. Maybe drive or looking at the sun. It's a new day rousing. Had a lot of fun saving the burning right stack. Stepping in time. Saw the vibe around to the desert 39. We saw the ice pack slipping in the sea and put a new check on the ocean and the trees We own the street near Hollywood and Vine Got three foot ties The ocean's rising high Float down by my three foot ties Oh yeah Most times, most of my rides Call me three foot ties Oh yeah Many, many Most times, most of my rides Call me three foot ties Many, many Most times, most of my rides Jack Fix 
Yes, only ocean in the trees We own a street near Hollywood and Vine We got three foot ties The ocean's rising on Float down Vine With my three foot ties Oh yeah Most times, most of my rides Call me three foot size Oh yeah, mini, mini Most times, most of my rides Call me three 